What a song. There my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians. And I'm going to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 from verses 6 to 13. I think this is number 9 or something in our study. Let's read God's word together. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let's pray. Father, we ask again as we come to your word that you would do your work that you would change our hearts, that you would bless your church, that you would grow our faith, that you would help us to see Jesus, our Lord and our Savior and our treasure. We ask that you would do this all through your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. They say statistically that the first five years of pastoral ministry are, are the most perilous because it's in that time frame that most people leave the ministry. Um, I've been doing this for maybe close to 10 years, and still now, if you ask me what my five-year plan is, I'll say in five years, I still want to be in ministry. But there was a line that Paul speaks in the book of Colossians that early on in, in my ministry took hold of my heart. It uh, strengthened me in my calling, and it has stuck with me uh, through tough moments in the pastorate. Colossians 3, verse 2 and 3, Paul says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then he says this, and this line has been for me a lifeline. In verse 4, When Christ who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That has become a banner over my ministry and my Christian walk. I want on that day, when I see Christ face to face, to have owned with all of my heart this truth. Christ is my life. I want to have been one who loved his appearing, as Peter puts it. 
throughout the New Testament, there's this understanding that we are to live for that day, that the second coming of Christ must shape our lives, our day-to-day decisions, what we give ourselves to and strive for and fight for, and what we run after. It shapes our days of frustration and trouble. And the reward of seeing Christ face to face is balm for us in our disappointments and light in our days of darkness and despair. We are to be a a people of joyful waiting with our, our feet and our hands in the world, but with our eyes and our hearts cast heavenward. And this is true for none more so than it was for Paul. And we see it in the way that he lived his life and the sacrifices that he made and the way that he endured what he was called to endure. As we saw last week, it was the reason he made great sacrifices for the church. And we learned that to be bound up in Christ is to be bound together with his people. Remember that bold statement Paul made in chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. He said, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you, church? For you are our glory and joy. That's a strong statement about what Paul chose to build his life upon. And as I began studying this text today, this passage for this week, there was another statement that immediately caught my attention. One of those verses that you read and make you, it makes you say, that looks important, but what on earth does it mean? What does it mean? In chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says in this passage, For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For now we, Silas, Paul, Timothy, we live if you, church, are standing fast in the Lord. And I've I've been chewing on the statement all week. I believe it's a continuation of what Paul said in chapter 2, 19 and 20, when he said to the church, you are my glory, my joy, my crown of boasting at Christ's coming. And I believe it's part and parcel with what Paul means when he speaks about the longing that we are to have for the return of Christ, when he says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with Him in glory. To long for Christ, because you live saying this, that Christ is my life. I believe it goes hand in hand with this statement, for now we live if you, church, are standing fast in the Lord. As Paul transitions in this part of the letter from giving a defense of his ministry while he was among them, And he gave a defense, you remember, for the reasons he couldn't get back to them. He transitions now to how he feels about the church. How he feels now that the good news has come from Timothy. And Paul's attitude again to the church must be an example for us. For what it looks like horizontally when our hearts vertically are saying and declaring, Christ is my life and I long for Jesus to return. There are four things in Paul's attitude towards the church that we'll see and learn from in this passage. Number one, we ought to learn from Paul's waiting, from his waiting. Have you ever been waiting for some news that really just consumed all your thoughts? Maybe news of the results of a medical test or a biopsy or something like that. 
Maybe you've had, had a loved one in ICU and just waiting to hear news of how they're doing. If you've written an exam and you, you weren't sure how that exam went, you're waiting for the results of that exam, or you, you've put in a job application, waiting to hear if you get the job. Sometimes when the news that you're waiting for is central to your life and how your life will be affected in the future, the waiting can be hard. And that's what we see in Paul as he waits for the news about the spiritual well-being of this church in Thessalonica. He had not heard about them since he had been forced out of the city by that opposition. He had not heard, and he would tried, tried again and again to get back. But we saw last week, Satan had actually hindered him from being able to get back into the city, back to the church. And so verse 5 of chapter 3, we read, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And so he took that risk and he sent Timothy, whom he calls my brother and God's co-worker in the gospel. And he sent Timothy to find out one thing. How is the church's faith? Has Satan succeeded or are they persevering in the faith? And after a long and agonizing wait in the city of Corinth, Timothy returns and he gives this report. And this is the reason Paul sits down to write this letter. There's this explosion of relief and joy in Paul that marks our text. Gordon Fee writes this. He says, now at last comes the moment of great relief. The collapse of the newly planted church did not happen. And this paragraph from beginning to end simply breathes gratitude. That's the spirit of this text. In verse 6, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Paul is rejoicing here. They haven't abandoned the apostolic teaching. They are holding fast. Uh, they long to see Paul and they're holding fast to their faith and their love. Faith and love. We see this combination again and again in Paul's letters. It's his continual concern for the churches. Because Paul knows that these two things, these two evidences, go hand in hand as a sign of the spiritual health of the church. In 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul is writing here to his young colleague who's pastoring at Ephesus. And he says to him this, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That love that flows from a heart of faith. To Philemon, Paul rejoiced. He says, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward, all, toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. To the Galatians, in Galatians 5 verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith working through love. These two things work together, and they are the proof that Timothy brings that the church is okay. The church is doing all right. Are we growing in Christ as the church of Christ? 
Because if we are, it will mean that we are trusting God more fully day by day and loving one another more genuinely day by day. And so Paul rejoices in this church and he makes this statement about what is central to his life in verse 8. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Now some translations take the edge off of it. They read like this. For now we can breathe again if you are standing fast in the Lord. But it's, it's more than that in what Paul feels for them. Remember in chapter 2 how he's already come paired his feelings to them like that of a mother for her own child and a father for his children. He says, we feel like we had a child torn away from us when we were removed from the city. Every Christian parent understands verse 8. Now we live if you are standing fast in the faith. You only have to ask those who Pray day after day and week after week and month after month, year after year for a lost or a wandering child who are kept awake at night by that. I feel as central to my life as a father, I feel as central to my life, the spiritual well-being of my children. I want them to, yes, I want them to get a good education I want them to enjoy their childhood. I want them to have happy marriages one day. But this is central. How I I pray for their salvation. And this is Paul's anguish for the church. This is what Paul builds his life upon. And his attitude here is the attitude through which we ought to evaluate our hearts for our church, for those around us, and for the world. We often are, are so caught up in... Many things, many other things, not unimportant things, things that do require our attention. But have we at times neglected this, the importance of faith and love? In this season of life as a church, are we trusting God and loving others? Are we living as if the the faith of those sitting next to me is central to my life, central to my cares and my concerns? Before we move on, I want to ask you this question. How would your week look like? How would this week look for you if your concern was for the spiritual health of your church? Would it be different in the the way that you pray and the way that you think about those in the church? Number two, we are to learn from Paul's persevering. From his persevering in verse 7. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. And when Paul speaks about distress and affliction, he had plenty to think about there. There was plenty to draw from. We've seen how he's been just driven out of city after city by Jewish opposition and by the Gentile rulers of these cities. Um, people who are opposed to his message and how it stands in the way of their economic interests. By the time Paul makes it to the city of Corinth, we know that he's, he's really he's feeling quite beaten down. In his first letter to them, he describes how he came to them. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. 
And then in his ministry in the city, it was so difficult that we know from Acts chapter 18 that Christ himself came to Paul in a vision to encourage him. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. Ministry was difficult. So when Timothy arrived with this news of the Thessalonians, it was a cause for Paul of great rejoicing. Because he was one who had given so consistently and sacrificed so consistently and endured so many hardships in his service to the church. Andrew Young observes in these verses, he says, News of this sort, of lasting life changes in those we serve in the gospel, is one of the greatest encouragements to press on in difficult times. The recollection of what God has done through us is often enough to keep us at our post and revive our flagging spirits. Is there somebody in your life who has perhaps been instrumental in your walk with Christ? Somebody who you know has been praying for you and walking with you. It might be a good idea this week to reach out to them, just to share some encouragement with them and and thank them. And Paul's perseverance here ought to call us to the same thing as well. Paul's desire, he desired so deeply that the church would not compromise their faith in order to avoid trouble, that they would not be sidetracked by the unrighteousness of their city. And that desire showed itself in Paul's life in his willingness to suffer, in his willingness to To endure. It showed itself in the songs that he sang in deep, dark Roman prison cells and in the way that he got up after beatings and stonings and carried on preaching the gospel, in the way that he stood boldly before powerful rulers and mocking philosophers, not seeking his own glory, but seeking the glory of Christ. What controlled Paul was that his lifestyle would point people to what is real life, to the truth that Christ alone is life. And so this text asks of us, is your life marked by a similar kind of of long-suffering, a willingness to, to sing praise, to rejoice in pain, so that when others look at you, when they look at your life, They see what it means to embrace Christ as being more than enough for us in our trouble. As being more than enough. The one worthy of worship in every season and the giver of joy in every circumstance. And in that way, are you encouraging those around you? Number three, we are to learn from Paul's rejoicing. Learn from Paul's rejoicing. Timothy brings the report about the faith and the love of the church, and Paul uses very surprising language here in verse 6 to describe it. He uses a verb here that is used 21 times in the New Testament, and every other time we see this verb in the New Testament, it means literally to preach the gospel, to preach the gospel. It's as if the, the news that Paul receives about the genuineness of their faith is to his soul like the very proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Leon Morris says this, The news was a veritable gospel for Paul, reminding him of the faithfulness and the power of God. It put new heart into him and enabled him to go about his work with vigor and with certainty. 
And so in verse 9, he says this, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? He's saying to them, I'm not even capable to, to be able to put into words how thankful I am to God for you, church. Amidst the troubles that Paul is facing on every side, he doesn't quit or complain. Paul rejoices in what God is doing in the church through his efforts. There's no easing of his pains in Corinth. There's no changing of his uh, physical circumstances. Or there's no greater comforts in those things. But he rejoices nevertheless in the grace that he sees in the strengthening of the church. Imagine in the middle of your affliction, being able to speak like this, unable to express in words the gratefulness that you have to God because of the good that he's done in someone else's life, or the good that he's doing in the church. This is part and parcel of what it means to wait eagerly for the one who is your life. Paul knows that his, his calling um, and ultimately, therefore, God himself has led to these distresses and these afflictions. But simultaneously, God is also the source of his joy, Paul's joy, because he knows in the middle of his trouble that his eternal investments are not shaken. He's living for something more than comfort. And so his example is, is a beautiful example for the church. And here Paul actually, he publicly engages in thanking God for them. He says to them, this is what I'm grateful for in your life. D.A. Carson points out that this is simultaneously for this church. It's got to be humbling and encouraging. It's not to fill them with pride that Paul is, is speaking in this way. It's because he, I mean, he's thanking God for them. He's not thanking them. He thanks God. God is the one at work, the one responsible. It's God's grace that leads to the good and the perseverance of this church. This must be humbling for them, and it must be humbling for us. Any good in our lives is because of the grace of God. Any perseverance is because of the goodness of God. But nevertheless, it cannot but be encouraging for this, this church that Paul rejoices in them in this way, in the way that God has worked among them. And this attitude of rejoicing, it, it ought to mark the church as well. It ought to mark our church. Paul's language here. I don't even know where to start to give thanks to God for you. I don't know how to even express in words my joy for you. Does that describe in some small way the way that you feel about your church and the people in your church? I can't thank God enough for these people. This is not calling us to be naive or, or to be blind to the, the faults. They weren't a perfect church. You might read Paul's words here and think, this, you know, this Thessalonian church, I wish I could be a part of that church. There must be a, a perfect church. That's not the case. The, the letter isn't only written to rejoice in this good news. The rest of it is going to include corrective instruction. In fact, in verse 10, Paul says right here, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So there's still things lacking in this church that he rejoices over. 
They were ordinary, sinful, but saved people. Just like the, the flawed and sinful and loved people that constitute our church here at HBC. And yet Paul's joy cannot be contained for this people. Too often this heart is, is lacking, isn't it? In the life of the church. We are, are short-tempered with one another and impatient. We are so often easily hurt and easily offended. We hold up this, this measure for others that we, we don't hold up for ourselves. We want to grow, don't we, as a place where grace runs deep. And our grace towards one another runs deep because we know, we appreciate how gracious Christ has been to us. We forgive because we have been forgiven so much. We need to train our eyes for optimism by seeing one another with the love that we know Christ has for us and the love we know that He has for you. We need to train our hearts to celebrate the good, celebrate the victories in one another's lives. We do this by becoming more secure ourselves in the, the love that Christ has for us and we need to ask God to give us eyes to see See that, that work, see that grace on display, to be edified and electrified by His grace to others. It was such a pleasure last week, wasn't it? To have Amelia stand here and share about their work in Papua New Guinea. And uh, Sharena, we got a chance to, to spend some time with her and just to hear her talk about the work that they were doing in that, that village. And you know, one of the things that touched me and moved me so much was the way that she spoke about the converts in the village, the way that she spoke about them with joy, a glowing pride in the, in the faith of the women, and a palpable joy in the, the men of the church who are earmarked as possible elders of this new church. When she spoke, she sounded like Paul in this passage. It was such an indictment for me, such an indictment for my heart. Do I look for the same in those around me? And do I rejoice in it when I see it? Do you? Maybe what Amelia and Paul have in common is something that we need to grow in as the body of Christ. And it's this. Maybe the reason they, they can rejoice in the church in this way is because they are pouring their lives out for the church in prayer and in sacrifice, in living missionally with their eyes fixed not on, on everything that we try to cling to, and on houses and cars and comforts, but eyes fixed upon Christ and longing for His coming. Longing for His coming. That's why Paul is desperate to see them face to face so that they would be established in their faith. This is what Paul lives for. Because when you're building your life uh, for that day where you will see Christ face to face, part of that is, is knowing that you are making eternal investments every day with your time, with your money, with what you have, with your resources. And part of that means you live for the church. You, you, you pour yourself out for your brothers and sisters in Christ. We are going to stand before Him and we're going to see Him there together. 
And that's the heart of Paul's prayer now for the church. Number four, finally, we learn from Paul's praying. So often I've you know, read the narrative of Scripture and just wished that I could be there. Wished I could have seen the looks on people's faces as Jesus did a miracle. Or heard the tones of their voices as they spoke to him. I wish that I could have been there in the the room when Paul was speaking with Silas and Timothy, talking about the church, planning their next step. Imagine being there as they knelt down to pray about the church. Imagine hearing their hearts. Well, in in verses 11 to 13, we actually have a, a glimpse of what that would have looked like. Paul concludes this first section of the letter by praying for them. And it's a prayer that summarizes his whole heart in the first half of this book. And it's a blessing to the church. It's a blessing to the church. This is the high point of pastoral prayer. And it is a template for us today. As we close, we have a chance now to make Paul's prayer our prayer. So let's do that. In verse 11, Paul prays. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. So remember last week Paul said, I'm trying to get back to you. Time and again I'm trying to come, but Satan is hindering us. Well, we see in this prayer that Paul knows something. He knows something. That Satan is not the deciding factor. That Satan's on a leash like we learn in the book of Job. Paul knows that he can pray to a sovereign God who is in control even over the havoc that Satan can wreak. That Satan can only go so far. So as we pray for one another, I encourage you, pray in this difficult season where it's, it's difficult to, to meet. It's difficult to meet in smaller numbers. And we know that the hearts of so many are being tested right now. Pray to a sovereign God. That Satan's schemes would be overruled. That they'd be overruled. And that God will establish the faith of his people. In verse 12, Paul says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. He's praying that God would make their love increase for one another and for all as we do for you. So not only is Paul's weapon, uh, uh, not only is prayer Paul's weapon against the enemy, It's also his hope for the sanctification of the church. He's praying to God that they would love one another more. And while we're longing for the return of Christ, this has got to be our prayer. Help me to love more and more as I wait for you to love those in my church in a a way that will overflow for love for the world. One commentator has put it this way. The Christian community is the school in which we learn to love. Like great musicians who practice tedious drills for long hours, Christians practice their scales at home in order to sing in public. In the community, love is commanded and modeled, and here is where it must be lived out and practiced. This does not mean that love is limited to the boundaries of this community, But if the community does not live by the model and teaching of its founder, Jesus, how can it expect others to do so or to hear its call to join with them? Central to the mission of the church is the way that we love one another. 
So I encourage you this week, as you pray, pray for this heart. Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 4, Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And why don't you try this? Commit every day, maybe just for 10 minutes, to pray for other people in this church. Pray for them by name. You know what you will find as you do that more and more? You'll find that your love for the church will grow. And as your love for the church grows, your prayers will deepen and grow and bless the church. And finally, in verse 13, we see the aim of this love increasing and abounding is, Paul says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Gordon Fee comments here saying, he reminds them that the ultimate goal, the ultimate goal is that they arrive together in the presence of our God and Father. We are going to stand before Christ one day. And Paul's prayer here is that they would be established in their, their hearts, blameless in holiness. Now we do not make the mistake of thinking that when we see Him face to face, when we stand before God, that our standing there will be based upon our own efforts and our own work, based upon our, our own goodness or righteousness. We know that we will stand before Christ, the Holy Judge, who is also the perfect, sinless sacrifice for our sin. And we rejoice in that. To stand blameless in holiness before Him is to stand in Him. Blameless in His righteousness given to us. But the outworking of that knowledge, the outworking working of the salvation of being in Christ is that we are changed in heart day by day and we stand. We stand firm to the end. We will stand and see Him one day. We are to live for that day. Christ will return. It is certain he will return personally, publicly, and gloriously. And that day will, will be a glorious day, but only for some. Only for those who have treasured and trusted Christ. For others, it will be a day of loss. It will be a day of sorrow. And so the point that Paul is making is that those who wait, they wait together. That our church community is essential. That we live for this. Not that we would just stand there alone, but that as many people as possible would be there with us glorifying Christ on that day. And so we pour ourselves out for the mission that He has given us. And that starts in the house of the Lord, in the way that we love one another. And we establish one another in the faith. Am I pouring out my life this passage asks us, am I pouring out my life for an eternal joy, not just for myself, but an eternal joy for those around me as well? Let's pray. Lord, we know that you will return. You will return for us. And all the, the troubles that we face in this life, all the things that maybe are gripping our hearts and, and 
causing fear or anxiety in our lives today, they are all nothing and fading in comparison to the glory of that day and the joy of that day when every tear will, will be wiped away because, because of our reward. We long to see you, Jesus, face to face. We long to walk with you. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to live in the light of the coming of Christ. Help us to pour ourselves out sacrificially for the good of those around us, for the good of the church. I pray that you would give us an urgency for prayer and, and, and an urgency for revival, and that you would stoke the fire in our hearts for mission, even in, in a season that is challenging for the church. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.